Hello and welcome to the Irish Fire Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Halton. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and financial independence enthusiast, sharing my financial freedom journey. Stay tuned and welcome aboard. Guy has been a friend of mine since the early 2000s. And what makes him unique is that from the age of 18, he started his financial independence journey. He had almost two decades on me in terms of the amount of time that he's had. And what makes his story special is that he had actually invested in the share market before 2008. In today's episode, we get to hear about his story and his struggles with the great financial crash. Guy has always had this amazing ability to put time and freedom ahead of material possessions. And that hasn't stopped him doing what he loves. He's traveled to many, many countries in the world. But at the same time, he has this knack and this vision of having the ability to live his life in a relaxed, low-cost lifestyle, which I think comes through in the interview. Guy is originally from Brisbane in Australia, but he's currently living in my old hometown of Auckland in New Zealand. And he has two young kids, age seven and four. We get to hear some of the stuff that he passes on to his kids, as well as his own story and financial education that he got from his own father. So without further ado, let's jump over to the interview. Today we have on the show Guy Davis. Guy, thanks for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Michael. Good to be here. Excellent. Now, Guy, I'm trying to think when we actually first met. It must have been in the early 2000s probably around 2004, I'd say, if that's, if that's correct. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon you've nailed it there. And you've always been a little bit of an oddity back when I first met you, because you always seem to <laughs> have this, you always seem to be on your own journey very much so from the early days. And when I first met you, I was certainly, you know, very differently minded. I was very much of a consumerism spending sort of mindset. And you always seem to have this ability to kind of know better. And in many ways, you were my early inspiration to fulfilling my own journey. So I guess, do you want to take us back to sort of the mid 2000s? You know, you must have been only 17, 18 and kind of tell us a little bit about what you were doing back then. Yeah, well, uh, you've definitely nailed the uh, oddball comment there, I reckon. I, um, I've said to you before that we in Australia, we sort of have our own name for financial independence. It's um, Tidas. <laughs> and I was always a fairly naturally frugal person, I think. You know, obviously, this financial independence sort of movement is is fairly new. Like, I had a lot of luck in a lot of ways. My mum and dad, they just always, I had quite a good model of sort of sensible, you know, solid financial behaviour there. They were fairly frugal. I've said to you before, Mike, that my father, he only ever sort of had menial jobs in his his life, but he was able to sort of build up a knowledge, you know, he, he went and put himself through night school because he'd um, grown up in a fairly sort of working class area of Brisbane and, and his father actually passed away when he was quite young. And uh, he somewhere along the line developed the drive that he wanted to come financially independent and do the best thing he could by himself and his family. So I was very lucky to have a really good role model from when I was young. So my financial journey, if you really want to go back, started when, well, my grandparents on my mum's side put a small amount of money 
in a, a managed share fund for me. And I think from an early age, I was always made a little bit aware of it. And it was just something that was talked about as something that was growing in the background. And I was naturally curious about it. And from a fairly young age, you know, sort of under 10, I talked to dad about it. And, you know, moving through my teens, I started to make my own money. And I don't know, I just had a temperament where I didn't naturally blow it. I think like a lot of kids do. He encouraged me to pull a little bit of that away and, and add it to this pool of, um, of investment money. So that carried right through. I finished school and I knew I didn't want to go to university. I couldn't stomach the thought of doing a bit more study. So yes, yes. I actually went, uh, well, as you know, Mike, I um, went and got an electrical apprenticeship and it wasn't much money, but you know, when you're living at home, it's, uh, you don't need much. So a bit of, uh, bit of petrol money and uh, a little bit of beer money and then the rest, you know, just, you know, you could save. And so I got this idea in my head when I was about 18 or 19 that I wanted to buy a house. So I went to the bank and they sort of humoured me, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they said, look, you, you need to be earning more money. And, and I talked to them and it, by the time I was a third year apprentice, I was going to be on enough money for them to give me a loan to buy sort of a really, a real starter house in Brisbane. and. So that next 18 months until I became a third year, I, I don't think I took a week off and I'd, I'd be in the, um, the foreman's office on a Friday afternoon asking if there was any overtime going and I was just really driven and I thought it was actually fun. I mean, you, yourself and your listeners might appreciate this a little bit, but most people in the outside world don't quite get the, the fun of seeing a, a pool of savings grow. But anyway, and I, I had a bit of luck on that front too because I still had this idea of my father that money invested is going to be better for you than money in the bank. So I'd get my pay each week. I could do a B-pay so I didn't have to pay brokerage and pay any fees and I could pay money straight into my share account each week. You know, the day I got paid and, and then I'd just have to get by with whatever money I had left for the rest of the week. It sounds crazy, but it was actually quite exciting. <laughs> for an 18 well, no, it year is. old it's, it's, it's ex but it's extremely addictive guy and i mean i've certainly found that myself i mean my portfolio now is just under 65 grand that's been achieved in 18 months so it really does get to a stage where you just you, know, you love seeing it grow that's that's really it's it's no different from raising an infant almost you know it's, yeah. you've got that kind of i wouldn't say love for it obviously but you've got that kind of drive towards it and so from that point of view it is it's extremely addictive Back to your father, I mean, like, obviously financial ed education isn't taught in schools, unfortunately. So you've obviously picked a lot up from him. And was it what he was doing or what he was telling you? I mean, was he working full time throughout your whole childhood or was it to a stage where you were starting to see his lifestyle change as a result of this stuff or he was telling you what was going to happen? You know, was he kind of directing his path onto you somehow? I think it was all, it was all modelled. I think a really important way to, to grow your wealth is that as your pool gets bigger, you can't start raising the, the cost of your lifestyle to match that or, or, you know, it all just gets inflated away. He's just recently retired, actually. He was 58 when he finally pulled the pin. I wouldn't say his lifestyle changed that much throughout that time. He was just, um, you know, he mowed lawns and he did a milk run at one point, you know. Mum worked part-time while we were at school. We never went overseas as kids. 
although that's something that's probably new, I think, for this generation with budget airlines and things. But we, we were always going to the beach at Christmas time. And I mean, I wouldn't say he was a raging tight ass or anything. You know, I'm probably worse than him in that regard. I'm sure you would second. But, uh, <laughs> but um, he just, he was just sensible. And I think he encouraged us that, you know, you work hard for your money. So you really want to get the best outcome for yourself and your family that you can with that money. You know, it's not something... Yes, yes. A lot of people work hard for a lot of money that they spend on sort of instant gratification type things. And as soon as you've had that little sugar hit, you know, does it really give you any lasting value? I mean, I don't think so. And I don't think he did either. And yeah, so I think it was a combination of modelling and when I had questions about the business pages in the paper or whatever, you know, he'd be more than happy to talk about it and just well-rounded. I, I would say Warren Buffett's got a good quote about winning the genetic lottery, you know, and, and in some ways he says that we've all won the genetic lottery by being born in this point in history, you know, in the developed world, you know, but I even had a bit more luck because most people don't have a financially literate parents because most people are not financially literate it's a learned skill even worse i think in some families it's sort of a taboo topic money and i think that is a um that's a tragedy you're certainly not doing your kids any favors going down that route in my opinion but anyway i i was lucky enough to have the opposite so yeah back to when you left school then and you made that decision to to get into the trade i mean for me you know hearing your story back the most important decision you made there was that you didn't go and put yourself in more debt or, or start going down into debt. If you'd gone into university, you were probably going to be looking at taking down some sort of student loan, having some sort of lifestyle where you put yourself in you know, potentially a life, lifetime worth of debt, and you'd avoided that trap by going into the, into the trade, I guess. Yeah, well, look, actually, you've just reminded me, he did say that to me. <laughs> when I was 17, 17 or 18, he almost said those exact words. He said, look, you've got an advantage here. You're going to be earning money three or four years earlier than all these other kids that have gone to university, and you're not going to have the student debt they have. This is a start, rather than looking at not taking the university route, he was already thinking along the lines of this can be a real advantage to basically start the compounding machine earlier. I think millennials in particular, it's a real trap that by the time you finish a university, you have your student debt. That's the time when you're seeing all your friends are living out of home and you want to go and live this inner city hipster lifestyle. And uh, that doesn't come cheap either. So you've really missed that period where you're still living home with your parents, where you really can have a chance to get things moving. 100%. 100% guy. I mean, that's, that, that, that's basically it, right? And then once you're in that debt trap, then you've got to go and get a job. You've got to get up and go to work and you've got no other choice, right? You've got to start yeah. getting this debt paid off and supporting this lifestyle. And we talk about on the show as they call it lifestyle inflation, where you just keep increasing your lifestyle and uh, you know, any chance of saving, which, which you've kind of touched on already, disappears. So yeah, look, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the investment strategy that you had. And I know it's, it's somewhat unique. I mean, a lot of people on the show will always tell us to invest in, in index funds. I think from memory, you kind of would be more selective in the, the shares that you're picking. I mean, do you want to share us a little bit about that? Yeah, I definitely can. It's eclectic and it certainly hasn't been without mistakes. But at that time, my money was in an index fund. I think it was with Vanguard, you know, founded by John Bogle, sort of the father of index investing. and. I'll just pop some money in there every week, like, like I said. 
that was another piece of luck. So that was uh, while I was trying to save this money was probably 2004 or 5. Of course, that was halfway through a roaring bull market after the dot-com bust had sort of bottomed out in 2001, 2002. There was a really good run in equities uh, right up until obviously late 2007 when the global financial crisis started to kick in. I mean, strictly, if you're saving money for something that, you know, something you access in the short term, yes, it should be in cash. Yes, yes, that's right. Because say the, the years that I'd been doing this uh, saving were to 2007, 2008, my house deposit would have got cut in half. So that, that definitely was an element of luck. So it was actually rising as I was saving. So I got to the point, I turned, you know, third year at work and I started looking around and I found a house. And I think by that point, I had maybe 35000 I think. I still wanted to have some money in the share market. So I think I took about 15 or 20 of that to be my house deposit. Once again, I was a bit lucky, you know, to have been born in a certain period because 10 years ago, houses were much cheaper. Well, in a lot of the world, I mean, I know Ireland's had its own fairly unique set of economic circumstances over the last decade, but of course, yes. in Australia, houses were much cheaper in 2006 than they were in 2016. So I was able to buy a sort of a starter house and also have the luxury of not having to use all that money as a deposit. I was able to hold some of it off in a share account. From there is where I started to make a few mistakes. So I thought, right, I've got the house now. Um, I was meeting the minimum repayments, you know, fairly comfortably. A few of our mutual friends, Mike, were living with us, as as you recall. And um, I decided I was going to use leverage. You know, they say a bull market plus leverage equals genius, you know, is, is the saying. And uh, I was impatient to start building a stock portfolio. I didn't have any equity built up in my house yet. So I went and used margin loans to start buying stocks. And of course, this was, this was now getting to sort of probably 2006, 2007. So, you know, it was sleepwalking into a disaster, you know, sleepwalking off a cliff, basically. But I was 19 and you couldn't have told me any different. I probably had 50,000 of my own money by that point And probably I borrowed probably 50 on margin. That was when I started to buy individual shares, but with no sophistication whatsoever, you know, just reading a tip in a magazine or something and thinking that that meant something, you know, now I'm much more skeptical about tips and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I was buying sort of solid Aussie companies, you know, Woolworths is one of our, for your Irish listeners, is one of our large uh, supermarket chains, well, the largest in Australia and, you know, National Australia Bank and Fox, um, you know, Rupert Murdoch's empire had an Australian listing at that point. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, even though some of those were quality businesses, the GFC spared no one, you know, <laughs> it just, uh, I, I went to all of a sudden, you know, a $100,000 portfolio of which I had 50,000 equity in to the portfolio was worth 50,000 and my equity no longer existed and um, the the debt was still there, of course. So, Looking back, I mean, it wasn't the nicest of times, but it proved to me that I do have the temperament to invest in equities. This is what I wanted to discuss with you because I do remember that time and I do remember you getting margin calls at the time and you were quite comfortable just keep throwing money into it. Whereas a lot of people would have, I mean, a lot of people were panicking and selling, right? But you had this ability to just go, right, I know it's going to come back. I know it's going to, and it has, right? I mean, it's tripled since then, right? So, you know, at, at the index as a whole. So, yeah, one of the reasons for having you on, which was so interesting, is it's very difficult to find 
people from the financial independence movement who started pre-2008. Most of them started after or during the crash, and they've ridden this amazing bull run. But you were actually there pre-2008, and you actually had to experience everything. And so, I mean, can you kind of touch a little bit more on what your mindset was? Everybody else is running to the hills. How did you kind of ride that wave, so to speak, and probably realize by that point, should I've made some mistakes, but now I need to correct that, or at least now I need to go through that, and, and rather than turn around and run away, I need to just keep kind of adding to this, to this pot, so to speak. What was your mindset, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, looking back, I'd say it, I'd, I'd call it an, an MBA from the University of Life, I guess. It was, uh, look, and as far as an education, I mean, I, I'm not equating myself to these people by any means, but when I listen to podcasts with, with great investors, quite often they got burnt early. You know, you almost need to lose some money, I think, to, to really respect it. Well, for one, you learn lessons, but going forward, you, you respect the market a lot more and it flushes out a bit of sort of um, risky behavior that we all are more likely to exhibit in our youth. Exactly as you said at the start, you feel impatient early on, right? Like you have this real impatience feeling. And I think as you get more into it, you start to become more conservative as you go. You, you stop trying to chase these sort of holy grails of, of investments, I think. Yeah, that's right. Of course, by 2007, it had been a six-year bull market and, you know, I myself had never seen anything other than a market that sort of just went up like an escalator. Definitely a healthy thing to do that. I mean, one thing that helped psychologically was um, my girlfriend, now wife, and I actually, we went overseas. We were traveling in Europe for six months from the start of 09 to the middle of 09. I think March 2009 was the absolute bottom. So in, in that way, I sort of... I wasn't really thinking about it too much. But yes, yeah, certainly, like when Lehman Brothers collapsed and a lot of that period through to late 2008, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It didn't phase me too much. It's like when I talk to you, Mike, you know, and you get it, you know, and I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast too, they get it about finances and, and their importance, not for, not for the sake of being some sort of Scrooge, but to make your life more comfortable and to be able to provide for your family in the best way that you can. So, you know, when we were talking finance, you know, a year and a half ago, when the conversation you're talking about that got you started, you got it. And I, I think that investing is the same way that you either get it that, right, this is something I need to uh, just hunker down and, and get through because historically equity returns have been just fine, better than just fine. And... You, you either get that or you don't. And, and it's probably the majority that don't really, but they, they suffer, you know, and, and that's why you get these. I, I heard a statistic lately, the average investor in a managed fund has done much poorer than the average return of the average managed fund. So you've got average funds doing a certain performance each year, but you've got people, the average investor has done worse than that because they sell at the bottom you know, capitulate, and then they're jumping back in when markets are much higher. And I think that's just human nature and, and I don't know, almost be able to shut it off <laughs> a little. But yeah, I mean, that, that's, I, I found it easier than most, I would say. It, it didn't bother me too much. I had a fairly long-term faith that it would end up all right. Fill us in, guys. I mean, you know, obviously you've, you mentioned the bottom hit 2009. So did you eventually get out of that uh, kind of tricky situation with the margin shares or what actually happened? Well, look, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone else to do it this way, but um, 
I was never worried because I saw it as I could meet the cash flow required to service that interest. The amazing thing about market bottoms is obviously prices come down, but dividends tend to fall a lot less than stock prices in a decline. So you could buy shares in 2009 that the Aussie banks were yielding 8% dividend. I was confident that with the dividends I was getting, plus obviously I was working as well, that I had no problems meeting the cash flow of the loans. So being liquidated, you know, your real fear is to be liquidated, to be for, 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 to get a margin call you can't meet and be forced to sell stock at the bottom. That's what kills you because even though you may not want to, you're forced to sell those um, horrifically low prices, you know, and, and I was confident that that would never be a problem and it, and it never was. And moving on from that, I kind of, I don't know, it feels like I must have almost been psychopathic looking back now. So I settled back into work after our, our Europe trip and uh, the market started to come back a bit. And another slice of luck was that there was a shortage of, of electrical tradesmen in Australia at that time. So the wages were actually quite good. I then went and I'd even built up a little bit of equity in our home by then. And I discovered that the bank would lend me money against the equity of my house that I um, then went and bought more shares with. Um, and so this was 2009-10. And, and I wouldn't, yeah, once again, I would. this is not the way to um, build wealth in a sensible way. But I, I was, you know, I was still 21, 22. And I borrowed a fair bit more money, actually, and invested it. But it was largely on faith that I could see that stocks were optically cheap. I don't actually think it was so much that guy. I, I think you've done the right thing, which is you've, you've actually looked at what you're buying versus the dividend returns. And I think so many people out there are buying based on speculation, right? And we see this yeah. in the housing market all the time. Yeah. If you're in a situation where you buy a rental property that actually costs you money each month, that probably isn't a good investment. Whereas you were, you were buying the shares going, right, these guys have historically returned X percent per year. And the price that I'm getting it for is going to yield me, say, 8%. So it didn't actually matter if it went up or down per se, because you're still getting that dividend returns, right? So in many ways, that was what you were looking at. Yeah, yeah. But it also, you just continued to have faith that it was going to improve. And yeah. I mean, even back 2010, there was still pretty shaky, right? So it, <laughs> it was definitely ballsy, but I think you kind of struck it on your head. And, and uh, Gary V, he's somebody, some guy I follow on YouTube, he will actually say in your 20s, that's when you should be taking your most risk, right? And he says the problem with most people in their 20s are the opposite. They, they minimize the amount of risk they take. Yeah, that's right. Whereas you've actually gone and you've taken the risk. I mean, it's obviously paid off. Mm. And even if it had gone balls up, you still had decades left to correct it, right? So it wasn't like it was going to affect you in your 60s, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's right. I mean, by the time you're in your 30s with, with small children, I mean, you can't afford to be taking those sorts of risks. But the other thing is that the market was cheap. You know, they say that when there's blood in the street is when you, when you need to be buying stocks. And that certainly, I mean, sentiment could not have been more negative. And I'd, I'd read enough to know that if it's truly going to be the end of the financial system, you know, your money in the bank's probably no good to you either. So you might as well put it in equities because there's a, ch a very good chance you're uh, close to a bottom. I mean, it's funny, like Warren Buffett, he says, you know, asset pricing is the only time when people run out of the store when there's a sale on, you know? And, and the end of the day, try to forget the sentiment. Look at the price, you know? When the price was two times higher, everyone was happy. 
now that now that you can pay half of that, people don't want to know about it quite often in these um, crisis scenarios. And it takes um, because it takes pain to get to these bottoms in in asset prices. I mean. It takes someone to have been holding that asset all the way down, and of course they're they're suffering. But if you have the capacity to step in at that point, that's when a heap of the world's great fortunes have been made. You know, certainly the Buffets and Seth Klamers of the world. That's when they did their buying and and distinguished themselves. You know, I mean, was it a case where you were kind of dollar averaging your shares? So I mean, if you had bought one at, at top range and then it fell. I mean, was that pushing you to buy the same share again, or were you just literally just holding it in the hope that it would eventually return? Well, I, I wasn't investing 100% actively at that point. The money that I borrowed against my house, I spread between three ETFs, an emerging markets ETF, ASX 200, which is our share index in Australia, our main share index, and I also put some money in a global 100 ETF as well, so the 100 largest market cap companies in the world, you know, obviously US dominated. So I, I spread it across those avenues. I didn't dollar cost average as such. I, I felt like I felt like things were cheap and I was fairly happy to, to allocate as I, I, I didn't necessarily see that there was a lot of value in allocating that money over the next several years because prices may well have run away, you know, and I, and I felt like the opportunity set then and there was offering very good returns and I was more than happy to take that moment as an entry point. Tell me a little bit, Guy, I know a few years ago you worked in the mines. I think you took a year and worked in the mines. And I know from memory, I think you paid off your mortgage during that time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I got another slice of luck, right? All these mining projects kicked off in Australia and there was just simply not enough tradespeople. You know, so the wages were pretty incredible. And this was actually just after my son was born. So I had a little one at home, which was really tough. But my wife and I sort of made a decision that it was worth it to just commit a couple of years for me to go out there. So it was pretty, it was short-term pain for long-term gain, I think. You know, I would have to get on a plane and, and go away for three weeks at a time and then I'd be back home for one week, you know, when you have a, a wife with a, a newborn child. I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal to leave someone in a situation like that for three weeks, you know, and, and I did miss some things early on with Theo, but I don't regret them because, you know, it's sort of allowed me to spend so much more time in the years since. And I think that's shooting for financial independence is it's being able to delay that short-term gratification, knowing that you're going to get a, um, a better payoff down the track. This was probably 2013, 14 we're getting to by then. And in that point, shares had actually come roaring back and I'd gone from a position of this huge debt overhang to that portfolio had actually produced a, quite a good return and there was a good chunk of money there. But I felt like shares had come a long way very fast and I didn't necessarily want to be buying more shares. In fact, I sort of almost wanted to be deleveraging at that point. So the money I was making, I decided I wanted to try to pay the my mortgage off. And in 2006, you know, the, the starter house that I bought was sort of only 300000 I mean, it's you don't pay that little for houses now, but with interest rates as low as they are. But, you know, a decade and a half ago, it was still possible in pockets of Brisbane to do that. 
So it was never a huge mortgage. Um, and by chipping away at it, I was sort of, I, I had been chipping away at it over the years till that point, and, and I was able to sort of finally knock it over in those, those couple of years that I was working away. Yeah, I mean, I remember you telling me the story, and, and it's something that really stuck with me, and, and it inspired me to really go about doubling my income, which is effectively what I did once I got back from New Zealand. But it was very much that case where, where you said, Mike, if you can get yourself in a position where you do double your income, you won't know yourself, you said, because you've, you've, you know, your base expenses, you're always going to have those set expenses, and it's that ability of that extra income that is going to give you so many options. So, I mean, I, I'd, I'd very much been doing that in 2017, but it, when I got back from meeting you in New Zealand, I, I kind of sat down and said, right, we're doing this. And, you know, that, that's what kind of started for me. And, and we never increased our lifestyle expenses. In fact, we decreased them considerably since then, but we doubled our, our income. And, and that's been what allowed us to do this. And I think, I mean, I remember you saying, you talk about guys going, you know, working Monday to Friday, and then you know, this is in the mines, and then they'd be down in the pub and uh, to use the Australian slang, they were, as you said, kind of pissing it against the wall, as you'd say. Um, whereas you were, you were doing the opposite. You know, you, you kind of had this end goal in mind. You knew exactly what you were doing by going out there, I guess. And I think in many ways, it's kind of inspirational that you had that vision. You knew exactly what you were doing and you kind of had the goal in mind. I think you're flattering me a bit there, but you're definitely right that the bulk of blokes out there, because they'd never received a financial education, they were blowing it. It was a gold rush in a way. You know, it was never going to last forever. Yes. And you really could make a difference. And, and what you say about what you did when you doubled your income, yeah, that's, I've always believed that, that you need to, and I, I think we touched on it earlier, that you really need to avoid that lifestyle creep. Yes. Because, if, you know, obviously that incremental extra income that you earn, if you can keep your costs fixed, is you know, say, say you're on 60000 a year and you have fixed costs of 40000 If you can somehow, even, you don't even need to double your money. If you can find a way to earn 80000 a year and you still have those fixed costs of 40000 you've effectively doubled your savings power. You don't need, and I think a lot of people don't realise that you don't need to double your income to double your investable income. Yes, very good. Now, that's, that's great advice, Guy. That's great. And I guess a couple more questions before we wrap up. In terms of your own children, you've obviously got two children yourself now, and I know, I know they're still very young, but um, I often talk on the podcast about the sort of stuff that I like to pass on to, to my kids. What sort of things are you hoping that you can pass on to them, you know, as they get older? Is there anything now that you're doing already that you're kind of trying to, to, to show them? I mean, obviously, and I guess you know, for, for our viewers, I mean, you're not working, right? So you're at home all the time, and it's like my situation now, I'm only down to part-time work. So having that flexibility where your kids see you all the time, they kind of, you know, I mean, I guess they don't know any different to a degree, but at the same time, they will at some point go, well, hang on, my dad's, you know, he, he's here all the time. All, all those other daddies, they're leaving at 7am, they're back at 7pm. <laughs> you know, what's going on? So, I mean, from that point of view, have you thought about kind of how you can help them, you know, how you can teach them the sort of financial stuff that you're privileged to learn? I definitely have. Uh, well, for one, I, I am actually working now. As a, I work part time as a teacher's assistant at, at their school. Okay. Well, okay. Well, let's well let's touch on that a little bit. And I, I, I apologize. I didn't realize that. But that's not something that you are doing for the money per se, right? That sounds like something no, that you're absolutely more doing. not. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of started doing it because a, like you say, I wanted the kids to see me working as well, and I was already volunteering at school a fair bit, and. 
I think they're quite keen to get men into the classrooms. They, when they had an opportunity, they actually asked me. And I just think it's wonderful. And, and I guess that's part of why I've done what I did over the years, that so that I could take a lifestyle option like this. I'm certainly not in a position to retire financially independent on uh, living on passive income, but I have the, and I suppose in today's society of both parents working and, and um, having childcare and all those sorts of things, you know, someone else sort of raising your children, it's a luxury to be able to make a choice like that to take a lifestyle job where I, I do get to drop them off every day and pick them up every day and, and I, uh, I wouldn't give that away for anything actually. Yeah, and, and I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about their mindset then because, I mean, Tony Robbins talks about this. He talks about when you, I mean, and look, I, I can appreciate that, that you're probably not fully financially independent yet. I personally don't think that there is actually a, a true number if you know what mm. I mean. I, I've talked about this on a few episodes where there's no such thing as being too rich or too wealthy. It's very difficult to say, right, we're now there. I mean, we don't know what, the, I mean, especially when you've got 40, 50 years yeah. ahead of you, right? You, you don't know what's around the corner. So I don't think it's necessarily about that though. I think it's exactly what you've done. You've given yourself options and now you're working because you want to, not because you have to. And, and I remember back in the yeah, 2006, 2007, I mean, you were often miserable going to work. You oh, I remember, remember it, mate. As, as well as you do, but... No, you're, you're I, right. I remember hearing stories about you uh, kind of hiding in the cubicle, reading the paper for as long as you could, just anything you could do to get out of actually changing another light bulb. It's funny, the stories you remember. Yeah. How is that mindset now different? I mean, obviously now you're doing this because you want to. How does that kind of impact on your day-to-day, -day, I guess? It's fantastic. Just getting to be there with your kids. I really love it. I still... I'm not full-time, you know, so I still have a time to, you know, smell the roses as well. But um, to have the chance to do something that's rewarding is excellent. And uh, I realised I didn't answer your last question fully either in terms of what I'm doing with my kids. I actually really struggled with this. It's hard to get good advice. There's just been a really good personal finance book uh, released in Australia by a guy called Scott Pape. He goes under the moniker The Barefoot Investor, and he's been a sort of a fairly prominent personal finance, you know, guru in Australia for probably the bulk of the last decade. But last year, he actually bought out a book called The Barefoot Investor for Families, and some of it's Australian specific, but I think in terms of the way you approach money with your children and the lessons you try and teach them, I think it's definitely a global message. But Aisha and I have tried to implement some of the lessons from that book. It just talks about you give your children, you know, when you pay them their pocket money, they have to do jobs, obviously, to equate a being paid with a work ethic. Yes. But you give them three jars, and in those three jars, one's for spending, one's for saving, and one's actually for giving, and they get to split their pocket money up into those jars as they want. That book, it really resonated with me, and I've, I've implemented that system with our, our children. I really like the holistic sort of approach to it, like having that giving jar as well, because, you know, we joke about, you know, me being a tight ass, but no one wants to be a Scrooge, you know, and, and no one wants their children to be a Scrooge either. I, I guess my philosophy would be, I don't blow money on things that I don't think are important. And some of those things might be things that society thinks are important, but a lot of that is just materialistic stuff. And I'm, I'm not worried, but I 
have blown a lot of money on travel over the years, as you know, because that's something that's important to me. You definitely want, don't want to be raising children who are going to be dodging their round at the pub. You know, you want someone who's confident and financially savvy, but who, you know, is, is compassionate with their money as well. And, and it will comp- hopefully compassionate in their whole character. But, you know, with your money is, is, is obviously a part of that as well. And I, so I actually, I really recommend his approach to children. We've actually just recently, I've opened a couple of share accounts, you know, with myself as the trustee, just in their names, small sort of money, sort of like, you know, what my grandfather did for me and Theo and Evie are seven and four, but we got the quarterly report the other day and I got it out and I said, you know, these are the, we looked at the fund holdings and I said, look, you're actually owners of these businesses, you know, and we sort of went on some of their websites and looked at what they do, you know, and I just think you're doing your kids a great service if you can open their eyes financially. Um, you know, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I, I, I think by trying to just model smart financial decisions yourself and give them guidance where possible and make money a common an open topic at the dinner table because that's that's where they're going to learn that stuff, you know? Nah, brilliant guy. That's, that's great advice. And I certainly like the jar idea. I'm going to go and implement that as soon as we finish this call. I'm sure there'll be a chorus of uh, protests, but I don't care. I think it's a brilliant <laughs> That's certainly great. And look, we're, we're very much on that mindset as well. I mean, we actually give 1% of our income back now to charity. Oh, yes. that's wonderful. That's been, and I know it's only 1%, but, you know, I think Tony Robbins says, if you can't give one, one penny in a, in a dollar, how are you going to give a thousand in a million? Let's wrap up. I've got one last question for you, which is mainly on what's next. I mean, you know, what do you see the next 10, 20 years of your life being? And I think you've kind of touched on it. And I think you're very much of the same mindset as, as me, whereas you kind of said it when you said, oh, you know, to have that time to smell the roses. In many ways, financial independence is about you know, having your own time and your own freedom. And I think you've very much touched on that. But um, what do you see the next decade or so being for you? And you know, where's this journey going to take you next? I think where my wife and I are at the moment is that it's actually quite a sustainable place. Because it's not necessarily a, a positive way to live your life to be constantly sa- making sacrifices or to be unhappy in your life, thinking that everything's all going to be perfect at some X amount of time down the track when you hit a certain goal. I don't necessarily think that's a way to live your life. So it's a journey and, and you need to be trying to make the most of it all along the way. So with my wife quite enjoys her job. That's why us switching and me doing the parenting is is almost ideal. So, you know, we're, we've only been in New Zealand for a couple of years and we're really enjoying living here and exploring. So I think I will continue to manage my sort of small pool of investments with the hope that they will one day be able to provide an income. But I mean, to be honest, my wife wouldn't want to give up work. She really enjoys what she does and what she does makes a difference, you know, which is fantastic. Hitting a certain number wouldn't necessarily change our lives at the moment, to be honest. We'll have a couple of teenagers by that point, so I don't know, hopefully uh, sitting around dinner table and shooting the breeze and, you know. It sounds to me like you're already living your life how you would if you were fully financially independent anyway. And I think this is something that's really important, the sort of journey versus destination thing. And I mean, you even mentioned it there to try and get to this magic goal or number is almost irrelevant. Yeah. The, the key thing is, is that you're living your life now how you would in retirement anyway. And I think I've always had this fear 
of working my butt off, getting to 65, going from full-time work to nothing, and then just being depressed because I have absolutely no idea what to do with my time. Yes, yes. You see it so often. Of course you do. And I think you've, you've set your lifestyle up around all of this stuff. And you're living proof that it doesn't matter what the numbers are necessarily. But, you know, your lifestyle is such that no matter what happens, you've probably got a low-cost lifestyle anyway. So mm. it's almost a case where you just get to live your dream. I mean, I, I think if anything, you not knowing what the next five or ten years is, is almost more exciting than if you did. Yeah. Because... You're basically saying, well, it's a blank canvas and whatever opportunities come up, well, we're, we're free to take them if we want to. And I think you moving to New Zealand was case in point. Like the opportunity came up and you went, yeah, why not? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you've, you've provided a lot of value to our listeners today. And I, I really do appreciate you, uh, you coming on the, on the show. I mean, like I said, your story for me was, was really inspirational for me to even consider going down this path um sort of 18 months ago so thank you very much for that you probably didn't realize how much of an inspiration you were but, um, <laughs> no yeah. you're very kind i'm so glad to to talk to you about it and and see you doing so well mate so yeah it's a pleasure guy thank you so much for coming on the show if any of the listeners do want to reach out i know that you don't actually have much of an online presence so if you do have any follow-up questions for guy then certainly just drop me an email at michael at playingwithfire.ie and I will pass them on to Guy and get back to you. Uh, but Guy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, it was a blast, mate. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're a big fan of the show, why not become an Irish Fire Podcast member for free? Members receive access to inside information that isn't shared on the podcast, as well as regular updates, such as a monthly newsletter. To become a member visit www.firepodcast.ie